The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we get ready to rock as the sales of Absolute Radio and Planet Rock go down to the wire. Plus, we discuss the response to Judy Burchill's most controversial column yet, and we talk everything small screen, including ITV's Splash, Channel 4's Utopia, and Kylie Minogue's star turn on Sky Arts. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined this week by Mr. Paul Robinson and Maggie Brown, Media Talk regulars both. Thanks for coming along. Pleasure. Uh, we start this week with radio and a potentially complicated story, which Paul and I will make incredibly simple. Paul, uh, well, we probably will. Um, this is all about um, Absolute Radio and Planet Rock. Now, both stations are up for sale, and it would appear that both stations are close to being sold. But exactly when and to whom, still not clear. Well, Absolute Radio was up for sale last year, then apparently taken off the market, but now it appears it's been on the market the whole time. A uh, number of bidders. We thought UTV would be a bidder. We thought Globe would be a bidder. Uh, John Pearson, who was uh, formerly the chief exec of Virgin Radio in the Chris Evans days, was also potentially a bidder. Which is what uh, Absolute Radio used to be, of course. Which yeah. is what Absolute Radio used to be, but he's now pulled out. And uh, he pulled out apparently on, on financial grounds. The, the business was valued between 10 and $15 million by his consortium. And uh, we believe that um, Absolute were looking for for in excess of 20 million but that's way way short of course of what the times paid for it times of india paid 53 million when it was then virgin radio and in fact before that chris evans paid 80 million for it so we're seeing the value of the station uh, going down really dramatically now 25 percent of what it was um, 15 years ago but it looks as though bauer are now in in pole position to uh, acquire it which is very interesting because uh, up to this point um, global has really been becoming very, very dominant, looking like it was becoming almost the de facto commercial radio player. Uh, they're about to absorb GMG. But if Bauer now add a, a national station to their stable, um, it really gives them a whole different sort of scale. But also it takes them from where they are, which is largely about operating local stations, with the exception of Kiss and Magic. You know, they're, they're big businesses, all the Scottish stations, it's Manchester, it's Liverpool, Leeds, all the big cities in the north, into having a new national uh, brand with Absolute Radio. And you mentioned there that the value of uh, Absolute has been plummeting ever, ever since it really rebranded as, uh, as, as Absolute from, from Virgin. And it's also losing the thick end of £4 million a year. So, I mean, how, how are Bauer going to tackle that, presumably by relocating straight away, closing down where Absolute is in one golden square? Well, I mean, obviously they can save a lot of money by moving into uh, the single building and saving all the back office costs. So there'll be a, a chunk of saving there. The big problem has been really since Virgin Radio became absolute, the audience figures have plummeted, as you say, and they've just not been able to convert the audience into uh, enough advertising revenue. And what we don't really know, because of the way Rajar works as a methodology, is whether Virgin Radio's audience was overestimated uh, by Rajar or whether Absolute's being underestimated, or it's a combination of the two. The reality is that Absolute as a brand Although it's a very good radio station, I think to my ears I'd say that uh, the team there have done a very good job and Absolute is probably a better radio station than Virgin was at the time it was purchased. But it's never, ever uh, achieved audience or commercial success. Maggie, what have you made of the Absolute radio story? Because, well, I mean, national national commercial license is thin on the ground, more so now because, of course, we've got digital radio. But, um, you know, it's it's withered on the vine, really, certainly in terms of uh, the audience for for its main station. Well, I think that, you know, people knew what Virgin Radio stood for, uh, but it was always hampered by having an an, an AM, a medium uh, wave uh, frequency, so it was never sharp or or clear. Um, And, in fact, it's it's, it's odd, really. It's almost as if we're seeing the same kind of destruction of value in commercial radio that we've 
seen in the newspaper industry, which I would never have anticipated 10 years ago. I think long, long term, when I, when I look back over, say, 30 years of the development of commercial radio, it has been mishandled from the very start. And, and it, in, in many ways, national commercial radio in this country was handicapped, and commercial radio was handicapped uh, when the new push began in, in 1992. And it's never recovered. It never got a fair share of proper frequencies uh, from the BBC, who managed to sort of keep hold of the best frequencies by launching Radio 5, uh, and, and making sure that they weren't stripped of those licenses, uh, of those sorry, of those frequencies, and so they've they've really, I think, always been uh, handicapped, severely handicapped in the commercial uh, uh, media race that, that's been taking place, and it's got worse rather than better, really, with digital. I mean, Maggie's totally right, and the other thing, of course, remember is that when the prospect of national commercial radio was being raised, the existing commercial radio industry, the local operators, didn't want it. The big players like Capital and Piccadilly and Clyde all lobbied against commercial radio. So the BBC were given a free hand not to hand over their best frequencies, but to hand over the ones they didn't really want to hand over, which were the two worst, which was the Radio 3 and the Radio 1am frequencies. Great, there was this great prejudice against so-called pop and prattle. So the well, best... The was cla- described as being, you know, the licence was for INR1 was a non-pop. It was it was not going to be awarded to anybody who did a pop format. It, it had to be a it, non-pop. It wasn't geared towards yeah. the tastes of, you might call the young audience, the, the young adult audience. And uh, I, I mean, I, I remember reporting on this with a degree of sort of amazement, really. Now, it is true that Classic FM has actually done a very interesting job, but it still remains fundamentally a niche rather than a uh, what you might call a, a, a big mainstream channel, able to say challenge Radio One or, or Radio Two. Yeah, I see this as an opportunity for the new owners of it is power to actually relaunch and maybe try and get some of that value back. Um, I mean, they've got a number of brands, a number of rock-oriented brands, um, and uh, they maybe they could actually you know rebrand and build it into something you know bigger than it has been in the past. Well, talking about rock, there, there's another uh, national commercial station. This is a digital station, also up for sale, Planet Rock. Which Barra have also been uh, been linked with Paul, but like Absolute, this is a, another station that loses money. This is probably three hundred, four hundred thousand pounds a year. Yeah, well, we talked about um, Gaydar a couple of weeks ago losing money and sold. Um, Jazz FM, they'll tell you openly they're not making money on less than a million listeners. Uh, this station, Planet Rock, has got 0.9 million listeners, and again is is losing money. I mean, I estimate they're probably bringing in half a million or so in revenue. So if they're losing two hundred, three hundred thousand a month, um, they need to literally double their revenue to start going into the black. The thing about Planet Rock's interesting is Planet Rock has been successful because of, of DJs like uh, Nicky Horn. You know, got a long um, heritage of, uh, of rock music from your mother wouldn't like it on Capitol back in the 70s. But also their playlist is very eclectic. So they've managed to attract real rock fans. It's not a um, maybe a traditional commercial radio playlist of very few songs played a lot. It's a very eclectic, strong playlist. And that's why Planet Rock's been successful. Now, whether that becomes a commercial business or not is, is another argument. But the interesting challenge for the new owner, it is indeed Bauer, is whether they actually change that format and make it more of a traditional commercial format or keep the eclectic nature of it. And I suspect if they don't do that, they may lose a lot of the audience. There's been the suggestion that Bauer would take the Planet Rock brand and then put that on, the, if they bought Planet Rock and Absolute, and then they'd take the Planet Rock brand and put that on the Absolute FM licence in London. How, how realistic do you think that is a proposition? It feels like the Planet Rock brand is... Well, it's, it's a brand for a start, which Absolute never really became. Well, they've already got Q and they've already got Kerrang, so that would give them four brands with Planet Rock and with Absolute. So they're not going to have all of those. That's just too many in a portfolio. The weakest there are actually Absolute and Q. 
uh, in terms of performance. So putting Planet Rock onto a national station with an FM in London, with an AM network, with a DAB, national DAB footprint, could actually be quite lucrative. That could well become a, a, liable, a viable business, particularly with all the savings that they can make as part of a group rather than a standalone business. And Maggie, we talked about um, earlier about the, the lack of um, national uh, commercial stations, but digital's enabling them to do that, and they've turned people like Ashley Tabor have turned local licenses into national brands, and I've seen plenty of TV advertising for, for Capital recently. And they really seem to be taking the charge to, to Radio 1. Very different playlists, of course, but they're, 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 really, they're really gunning for, uh, for the BBC in that respect. Yes, and I mean, one can only hope that somehow we do actually reach a full 100% coverage for DAB, but we're such a long way off that um, it's still... Um, not an not an equal playing field, is it? Feels like DAB pools being overtaken by online listing. I mean, not literally yes. yet, but uh, you know, I've got a DAB at home that regularly cuts out whenever I put five live on, which always makes it a pleasure listening to the football results. Uh, <laughs> so, what I, what do I do? I, I stick the iPhone in the socket, whatever you call it, and then listen to you know tune in radio. DAB will not go away because you need a broadcast solution, but DAB is not the whole solution. You know, as radio goes digital, DAB will be one player, but it's not going to become the only solution. Absolutely not. Not anymore. No. Well, a clue to the imminent sale of Absolute Radio, perhaps, was the departure of its chief operating officer, Clive Dickens, Paul. He's off to Australia. Yes, he is. Clive's done a great job over the last five years. He's a, a seasoned commercial radio operator. I was um, lucky enough to meet him when he was just out of school and gave him his first job uh, in commercial radio as head of music at Chiltern Radio. He became the youngest commercial radio head of music, and he went on to Capital and BRMB, and he's done a great job at Absolute. So I'm not surprised he's going. He's going off to Australia, which in itself is interesting because they are having quite severe problems. They They've lost uh, revenue 10% down uh, year on year. Uh, they've got Two Day FM, which is their big station, plus music stations. But they really want to get into digital. And digital is actually way behind in Australia compared to the UK. So I think Clive's expertise and experience in making uh, Absolute into a digital brand is what Australia are really looking for. So I think he'll do very well out there. And to Two Day FM, that was the station that was involved in the in the, was, uh, the, in the news court. for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Right, right. The other thing to mention, of course, is that um, Paul Jackson is out in Australia. Paul Jackson, who's... Uh, son of Richard Park, formerly ran Virgin Radio, ran Capital FM. He runs the DMGT radio stations in Australia. So Clive and Paul, uh, both Capital trained, are going to be rivals in Australia. Well, just one final word on, on Dickens. I mean, he's certainly um, innovated digitally and he's hired people like Frank Skinner and uh, Dave Gorman and uh, did lots of podcasts and they've launched loads of digital stations. But in terms of the audience for the main station, you know, I mean, it's, it's more than a million listeners down on what it was when it was Virgin. So I have to agree on his report card. That's not a success. But overall, I think he's done the best job he could with the things he had to play with. Well, next up, we turn our attention to Judy Birchall's column in The Observer last week. It turned out to be controversial. No change there, you might think. But this one particularly so after she described transgender people as screaming mimmies, bedwetters in bad wigs, and dicks in chicks' clothing. If you haven't read it, and you still want to, you'll have to go somewhere other than the Guardian website after Observer editor John Mulholland admitted the paper had got it wrong and removed it from the site. The column prompted thousands of comments on the Guardian website, Twitter and elsewhere, and Government Minister Lynn Featherstone even called on Birchall and Mulholland to be sacked. Earlier, I spoke to Media Guardian columnist Roy Greenslade and asked him what he made of this episode. It all got, in my view, fantastically overblown, but it's a whole series, I think, of misunderstandings. First of all, it began with Suzanne Moore writing a column in The New Statesman, I think a bit of her book, actually, uh, in which is a throwaway line when she was talking about another subject entirely, in a sense, she said that uh, women um, should not aim to have bodies like a Brazilian transsexual. This led to criticism on Twitter. 
she then replied on Twitter to that criticism in a fairly dismissive fashion, causing yet more of the Twitter sphere to go mad. And then her friend, Julie Birchall, used her column in The Observer to defend Suzanne. And in a phrase, a winning phrase of the Evening Standard columnist, Sam Leaf, she tended to attempt to douse the flames by putting on petrol. In other words, hers was seemingly another overreaction. And that, in turn, caused this amazing furore, which, which led to pressure on The Observer editor to take the thing off altogether. And you said in your um, column in the Evening Standard that that was the wrong decision. Yes, I think once it was there, it was uh, unfortunate to feel it necessary to take it down. Now, I understand the reasons why, because uh, I think the view is that if it was grossly insulting and offensive and you, and you felt it was wrong uh, retrospectively, uh, then you'd feel a need to take it down. A- anyway, of course, nothing can be taken down from the net uh, and instantaneously, virtually, uh, the Daily Telegraph uh, under Toby Young, another friend of Julie Birchall, uh, put it up on the Telegraph site. And I understand the editor was very happy about that on the uh, grounds of free speech. But the point is, it, it, it sort of made a double trouble, I think, for the Observer, having made the mistake of running it uh, in its unexpurgated form, first of all, uh, to then take it down appears to be uh, sort of doubling the mistake. What's the bigger picture, do you think, here? What, what does it say uh, about freedom of speech uh, in the sort of digital era? And also we saw the, the, the Twitter effect there, you know, to, uh, on, a, on an enormous scale in the sense you described, and one controversy leading to another controversy leading to another controversy, and, 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 and John Mulholland took the decision to take it down, but it almost became as, as if he had no choice. Such was the, such was the, the pressure coming from, from, from outside, you know, on, on, online. I think we have to grow up a bit about Twitter. We've seen these Twitter storms before. There was the case, I think, when a case involving Rod Little, there was a case involving the Daily Mail's columnist, Jan Moyer. And I think that we need to get in perspective. First of all, nearly all of these people on Twitter form themselves, as it were, into a lobby. I'm not absolutely certain whether all those people that were claiming that this was a great insult to transgender people were really, in a sense, themselves a part of a lobby. Are they speaking for every transgender person? I'm not quite certain about that. So you do get lobbyists using Twitter. That's the first problem. And I think people therefore need to grow up and say, look, because there's been a Twitter storm, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean any more uh, than the fact that a lot of people have got together and, and started shouting and they're all as you know, because it's simply a case of retweeting very often somebody else's view, and that mounts up. So we need to get a sense of perspective about that. But I think the other side, if you look at it from the plus side, it does show that um, we can no longer be in that secular priest position where we, as journalists working for the mainstream media, can simply say what we like and then get away with it. We are going to be answered back. It's much more of a conversation nowadays And we have to realize that sometimes if we get it wrong, then we need to step back and ask ourselves whether or not we did the wrong thing. Now, I think the way of doing that was to perhaps top and tail the piece rather than take it down. And we could still admit it was wrong and not necessarily remove it for all time. Also, of course, in so doing, we remove the 2,200 comments below it which made alternative points of view, which themselves would have been genuine and interesting to read. 
And we're now waiting for an inquiry by the Observer's Reader's Editor, Stephen Pritchard. But I guess one thing's certain, Roy, whether it's whether it's the result of his inquiry or whether Julie Birchall writes a, a follow-up column, uh, the Observer this, this weekend will be uh, required reading. Uh, yes, I guess it will. Uh, although I don't know how swiftly Stephen Pritchard's going to be able to conduct his uh, inquiry, but I hope that his conclusions will be uh, in the Observer on Sunday. I, I don't think it should need to be a very long inquiry. I, you, you know, I mean, it's easy on hindsight uh, to say that it was awful what happened. I think, um, to keep a sense of perspective, one needed to understand that um, this is exactly food and drink to Julie Birchall. She, she knows how to do this. She is the queen of spleen, if you like. And uh, people need to understand that she is attempting to coax and provoke them into this kind of activity. My thanks to Roy Greenslade there. Coming up, Sky TV's new drama launch, Radio 4 Goes Lewd, and what rights do you have when a newspaper uses your Twitter photos? Find out after this. This week on The Guardian Audio Edition. Spies, Chopin and a last-minute rescue in Libya. Cyclist Nicole Cook retires and speaks out. And our audio book review looks back at Raymond Chandler's career and Stuart Neville's rat lines. To subscribe for free, go to audible.co.uk forward slash Guardian Audio or find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. Paul and Maggie are still with me. Let's cover off some of the other media stories of the week. And there were two big programming launches, one at Radio 4 and one at, uh, one at Sky. So we had uh, all parts of the brain catered for, you might say. Uh, and Maggie, I saw you at the, uh, the Broadcasting Press Guild lunch with um, the Sky Head of Drama, Anne Menser, and she had plenty to talk about. Yes, she did. 17 new uh, dramas uh, covering a whole range of different uh, types of programming, going from Sky One, Sky Living, Sky Arts and Sky Atlantic. You've covered uh, rather well, I think, one of the most eye-catching bits of talent. Kylie Kylie Minogue. Minogue, Yes, coming in to do a Sky Arts, um, well, black comedy, I think, is how I would describe it. What's actually going on is that she's been there a year. She was the former head of uh, drama uh, at uh, BBC Scotland. This is um, Anne Mensah. Anne Mensah, yeah. She has a really, really good track record. She's very, very canny and... Uh, eclectic really she knows that she has to work with a team because you have to have a different variety of tastes and sensibilities if you're commissioning across a range of quite different channels which are clearly oriented towards niche for example sky living is women sky atlantic is the sort of um, male sophisticated lover of american stuff and sky one is mainstream uh, and she have, has of course got this um mass of new money to um, distribute and it it was the first time I've met her and I've in fact spoken to her about some of the choices but it was the first time I'd heard her being able to give an overview really of what she's been uh, leading over the past 12 months and we got this um, I mean just very very interesting but in some ways quite annoying briefing when I say annoying um, it's quite clear that Sky does have criteria to judge whether or not dramas are commissioned and whether they're uh, recommissioned, but they're not very clear uh, or or they're not really able to explain, really, I think, a lot of their commissioning decisions, their creative decisions, which beyond, I think, saying that they obviously want to work with big talent, which is partly what Sky Arts is about. You have um, people like, say, uh, John Hamm and and Daniel Radcliffe, uh, who've just been on A Young Doctor's... um, Notebook. 
notebook. That's right. Sorry, um, on on Sky Arts. But so so they clearly demand big talent, and they are in a in a process at the moment still of wooing people by almost letting them do passion projects. But at the same time, you know that lurking in the background is this very commercial broadcaster, which has to basically justify every decision it makes according to whether the customers are happy. And that was the difference. Again, here was a, a seasoned BBC uh, executive or ex-executive um, talking really about customers rather than viewers. And I, I, didn't, I don't know what you felt, John. I didn't really get much sense of, of, of how decisions are made other than they, they go and they talk to people and if people have enjoyed their dramas or think that they're worth paying a subscription for, then that's the right thing to do. And I, I suspect it is a bit more tricky than that. Well, with Sky, Paul, the mantra is always it's not about the overnights. Uh, it's about subscribers because they're a pay TV business. And in one sense, that's a good thing because the audiences they get are inevitably perhaps a, a fraction of what new drama gets on BBC One and ITV. But... Uh, the point, I think, is that if the overnights are so low, then clearly they're not going to be driving subscribers either. So, you know, how, how do you measure that? Well, I think that Sky looked at it like this, and that is there's 13 million TV households in the UK that don't take a B Sky B subscription. So that's their potential market. Uh, and they want to penetrate more and more of those households. And they know to do so, they've got to overcome objections to Sky, which is partially about the quality and range of programming. So what they want to do is they want to position the brand uh, in such a way that they can actually attract new subscribers. Uh, viewing figures are not unimportant, but they're not the most important thing. What's more important is how people view Sky as an overall provider. And also, so they need to be seen to be spending money. Remember, Sky now attracts more money than ITV. It attracts more money than the BBC licence fee. They're the single biggest uh, pot of money now in, in the UK. They need to be seen to be investing in original uh, content. And so they're starting to do that. Okay, we mentioned the Kylie Minogue. Uh, uh, I think it, they described it as sort of a Tales of the Unexpected style, uh, sort of a very black comedy drama coming to Sky. They've also got Fleming, which is a, a four-part uh, drama about Ian Fleming. Yes, uh, with Dominic sounded, Cooper. That did sound interesting. I mean, and also, I mean, they've got some top talent. I mean, we think of uh, Matt Smith is coming in, Idris Elba, and uh, we saw only just uh, this this last month uh, the Daniel Radcliffe, John Hamm pairing in a Young Doctor's Notebook. It's also about, I think, trying to establish really good relations with top talent in front of the camera and behind so that uh, they're building up a kind of reservoir of goodwill so people will work with them and they can call on these big names and in some ways tie them up so that other broadcasters don't necessarily have as free an access to them as they might have, have wanted to do. There is an element of competition. At the same time, they don't really spell out that clearly what they, how they make their decisions. For example, in the summer, there was Hit and Miss, the um, story about the transsexual um, contract killer who uh, was played by Chloe Sevigny. Now, yesterday we were told it was only ever going to be um, a, a one-off series, but I distinctly remember this being a, a potential for a, a big returning series. But, you know, it, obviously we don't know exactly why it didn't work because if you look at viewing figures, it's, it's inconsistent, really. So it, I still remain rather um, unsure, I think, is what I would say, of, of, of their drama policy, apart from the, the belief that, um, as I say, they need big stars and they need uh, big writers. And they, they, they're still looking f- to build, I think, goodwill. Okay, well, as I mentioned there, Sky weren't the only ones with a programme launched this week. Uh, Radio 4 controller Gwyneth Williams uh, welcomed the assembled uh, media hacks uh, to a new broadcasting house where, Paul, she had uh, lots of uh, new arts and culture shows to talk about and projects, but also uh, a new version of a a controversial poem that uh, caused uh, 
uh, all sorts of, of course, the Daily Mail in particular, to get very hot under the collar when it was broadcast on Channel 4 about 25 years ago. Yeah, well, she's saying she wants more joy and more arts and culture on the schedule, which is absolutely, absolutely fine. And I think that's a, that's a pretty, pretty smart thing to do. Um, v um, is clearly controversial. And in 1987, when it was on Channel 4, and I know Maggie remembers this very well, as, yes, as we, do we I. Ran, we ran the story, we ran the poem in, it in the It was hugely controversial then, wasn't it? I mean, well, but, we should say this is the uh, Tony Harrison. Tony yes. Harrison's poem. Because, it, because it's full of, 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 yeah, full of very bad languages, you know, C, C words and, and, and S words. But, and but I remember watching it yeah. on, uh, on Channel 4, and it was anything but uh, inflammatory. Or it's, it's a very moving poem, and it's a man really lamenting. He's exactly. in a graveyard, and his uh, father's uh, tombstone has been defaced. And it's really a kind of almost like an elegy to a lost Britain and and a commentary on the current state of, yeah. of, 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 of yobbish behaviour, really, in the 1980s. And it does so it very effectively and very, very, very evocatively, I think. You certainly couldn't redact it. If you're going to no, you use V, you've it. got to show the whole thing. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think, they're being very sensible. They're surrounding it by other programming that puts it into context. Um, it's going at 11pm at night, um, and it's going to be loads and loads of on-air warnings. You know, if you don't like what's coming, you know, please don't listen. So I think it's entirely the right thing for Radio 4 to do, and I applaud Gwyneth for doing it. Well, I felt rather kind of, you know, a sense of deja vu that I was seeing this story kind of, you know, being sort of brought up again. And quite honestly, it just makes me slightly despair. And if, if well, you, don't think, you don't think Radio 4 should be no, going backwards, I think we, should be looking I, I forwards? Don't, I don't really mind. I'm, I'm, I think it's a good piece of work. So, yes, of course it can be revived or, or, or recited again. I don't have a problem with that. I'm just so fed up of these kind of knee-jerk reactions. Oh, goodness me. I, I, I think... Having said all of that, I think it won't please a lot of Radio 4 listeners because it will take them outside of their sort of comfort zone. Radio 4 is so conservative, you know, I mean, anything, I mean, number of controllers in the past have, you know, lost their jobs for making two radical changes on Radio 4. You know, it's a very powerful, very vocal, very articulate audience. So you have got to tread carefully. Well, I'm a Radio 4 listener, but I don't mind. I'm happy with it too. I'm happy too, but I think there will be uh, an outcry and I think, you know, certain publications, Daily Mail, will absolutely be trumpeting this is disgraceful and BBC shouldn't yes, be doing Paul, this what, I think they're totally wrong what bothers me is that I would much rather Radio 4 was going to sort of um, if you like stir up a controversy for some new work I mean given it is such a patron of uh, screen of, of writers and script writers starting out and, and, and the arts you would have hoped that Perhaps if we're going to have a bit of outrage, let's have some outrage over some new yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, Gwyneth did say, though, she's planning to um, uh, recruit the first ever writer in residence, which is, um, you know, an idea she's made work in, in previous lives. And that, that will clearly be uh, all new work. Um, and she's also looking about a tie-up with, uh, a tie-up with Art- Archangel, fun, fun some more activity. So I think there is new work in there as well. Next up, we turn to one of the big stories of the week. Twitter pictures were put in the spotlight following the London helicopter crash. Issues of image copyright were highlighted as major media outlets used photos taken by Twitter account holders posted on the site which ended up in the national press. Here's Media Guardian reporter Lisa O'Carroll who takes up the story. Wednesday's helicopter crash in Vauxhall really threw it into the spotlight again because it was Twitter that broke that story. The Today programme referred to Twitter. There were pictures, there were eyewitness accounts straight away. And that led then to articles immediately on online versions of the papers, the Sun, the Mail, even The Guardian was using Twitter pics um, in its live blog. And then by lunchtime, the Evening Standard had splashed on a picture taken from Twitter by a guy called Craig Penner, 
So there are a lot of people wondering, what the hell are the rights of ordinary people, as well as professional photographers? So basically what you need to know is that under the Copyright Designs and Patents Act 1988 in the UK, you are the author, any freelancer, author of an article, author of a photograph, owns the copyright to their own work. And unless you sign a piece of paper waiving those rights, you own the copyright. And that's indisputable. All newspapers know that, and they acknowledged that when I did a ring around yesterday and said, particularly the Evening Standard said that in the, you know, in the heat of the moment, they grabbed the pictures, they didn't have time to get in contact with the authors of them. And, you know, if those people phone up, they will definitely pay them. So in the past, yes, I think there was an assumption by news outlets that it was a free-for-all. Everybody accepts that's not the case. But the Twitter terms of service, um, you might wonder, does that change things? It actually doesn't. What it does is it gives Twitter the right to use your photographs. If you post them on Twitter, you're automatically signing away your rights to Twitter, but not to anybody else. So, no, um, Twitter terms of service doesn't change anything. It doesn't, it doesn't take away your copyright at all. It's time to talk TV now, and who better to talk TV with than with the TV editor of The Guardian, Mrs. TV, Vicky Frost. Hi, or Ms. Mrs. TV. TV. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, it's The Guardian. Thank goodness, I got there just in time, yes. Uh, right, what's on the box this week? Well, what was on the box this week uh, was Utopia, which I think we should talk about. Channel 4's big new drama that I really, really like. Very clever thing by Dennis Kelly, who wrote Pulling, although that shouldn't necessarily be a guide to what this is. It's kind of this comic book kind of idea, but there's loads of conspiracy theories in there and a very graphic torture scene, which got lots of people talking uh, the following morning. A very long opening episode as well that went out at 10 o'clock, didn't finish till 25 past 11, which is really quite late, I think for a school night but uh, it looks like nothing else on British TV I think it's a really exciting new drama you know full marks to Channel 4 for for getting it out there because I think it's and I think it's one of those dramas that that if it sort of carries on in the same vein uh, it really does have the opportunity I think to redefine drama on Channel 4 and sort of you know, it feels like Channel 4 drama had lost its way and this could sort of really sort of put a stamp down there. We're doing really interesting things again. Could be good, I think. Maggie, it felt like other Channel 4 dramas we've seen recently, Secret State and The Fear, didn't, didn't really set the world on fire. Do you think Utopia will? Well, it hasn't, unfortunately. I mean, the ratings are actually quite poor, uh, just over one million, although we don't know yet what the demographic breakdown is. If it if it really appeals to, say, the under-35s, then uh, it's, it's probably a good deal for Channel 4. I actually think it is too violent, but that's why it had to run at 10 o'clock. I think 10 o'clock is, is a late start for prime drama, even if it's angled in a particular way because it isn't exactly the same as a comedy or an entertainment show and it does require a lot of concentration. I agree with Vicky that it is interestingly constructed and well written and one of the reasons is that the writer Dennis Kelly who also did Matilda the musical uh, he actually understands that if you're creating this kind of heightened reality you just go straight in and you do it and that's why it does actually create its own kind of world and that's why it is interesting and breakthrough I, I, I would say it, it does mark a shifting gear uh, for Channel 4 and I applaud that but it is extremely violent and there's something quite nasty about it although there are some very humorous bits too and I will be interested to see how it continues over the next five weeks of course I wish it well I mean my honestly my concern about 
drama on Channel 4 is that it is loss-making for the channel, but I would like it to get the maximum audience it can and also to get the maximum support from advertising to fund more drama. I mean, it's channel-defining, isn't it, drama? I mean, it, you of know, course it is, loss-making. yes. You see, now I think with the violence, and I... You know, I'm, I'm a bit squeamish about lots of violence on screen. But I kind of went with it because I think it's set within this cartoon world. That's the whole setting for it. So actually, that is how the violence should be. It should be extreme and it should be cartoony because that makes sense within uh, the vocabulary of the drama, actually. You won't often hear me saying that, actually. Normally I say, oh, no, no, I'm very squeamish. That was too much. And it was quite a full-on scene. But I really do think it's defensible within this context. Two things. I'll be interested to know how many people actually turned off at that torture scene because I know I, I couldn't watch it. So, But that's just me. The second thing that worries me about this drama, and this is probably me just as a mother, but there is supposedly an 11-year-old boy in this who witnesses a lot of these things. Now, I know that there's a whole issue of, of, of how a child is used on set and all the rest of it. Now, I spoke to the actor boy, who is only 14, in fact, and I was surprised when I watched it, a preview, that he was in the audience, because I would say that it is too strong a drama for a 14-year-old But, he, but he's seen it made. I mean, you know, he will sort of, you know, he's not going to buy into it, the world, in the same way as a, I don't know, I thought he seemed quite shocked. He was with his sister, and um, I did have a word with him. Talking about violence in dramas, there's another particularly violent drama on TV at the moment, Vicky, which is BBC One's uh, Ripper Street. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one, this, I think, Ripper Street. Um, and also, of course, comes after ITV's Whitechapel, which was also hosted by another former spooks actor, which is slightly weird, I think. You've got Whitechapel and Rupert Penry Jones over there, and you have Ripper Street with Matthew McFadden over here. Yeah, very old. Opened with really quite a violent opening episode with kind of snuff movies and lots of prostitutes and, and you know, some bare-knuckle boxing. And I just kind of felt, look, you're sort of trying to set out your stall here and it's all a bit strong and a bit unnecessary, really. It's not an uninteresting idea, I suppose, that you're kind of, you know, you've kind of got this period drama detective. Matthew McFadden does make a really quite good, I think, leading man in terms of really owning the drama and 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 so on but i'm sort of less convinced less than entirely convinced by it i wouldn't you know it's one of those things that is a sunday night if it's on i'll be happy to keep half an eye on it but i'm not going to be tuning in to keep up with it it's got jerome flynn in it who is surprisingly good actually he's sort of like a really quite good thing about it of robson and jerome fame of robson and jerome it's was he on the roof <laughs> I love that. If he like broke into a song or a tap I ha- dance. I have to say, Vicky, that uh, I I have watched the first episode, but that really kind of put me off, and I haven't watched. Too violent again. Well, just sort of. There's a sort of unnecessary kind of. I felt the snuff movie element went on for far too long at the end. Uh, there was also a sort of rather gratuitous lingering over a sort of mass orgy, which I didn't think really had, okay, it's Victorian and we know that all sorts of things happened, but I just sort of thought it was just a little bit unnecessary. And to be absolutely honest, I like Mr Selfridge. So I'm watching ITV at nine o'clock, despite what the critics are saying. Well, yeah, I'm not, no. (laughs) Sorry. This is the department store drama with uh, Jeremy Piven. Yeah, Jeremy Piven. He's great. Jeremy Piven is great in it. I love him. I think Paul's got the casting vote here. What's one all? I'm afraid I'm I'm a, I'm fascinated by Jack the Ripper, so I saw Whitechapel and I am watching uh, Ripper Street. I could take it with a bit less violence, but I think it's sort of I'm into it now and I really like it, so I'm afraid I'm Ripper Street. Okay.
Well, we mentioned uh, Mr. Selfridge there, and uh, is it called Mr. Selfridge? It is, yeah. Oh, well, thank goodness. I just, <laughs> thought I made a terrible mistake there. I thought it was Mr. John Lewis for a second. Um, but Mr. Selfridge and is one of two ITV shows which aren't exactly charming the critics, but are getting decent audiences. And the other show, of course, is... Splash. Which kept its audience, you know, in that second week. It, you know, it kept Almost, most of it. Yeah. Just you know, down a bit, yeah. yeah. just done a little bit. And the same for Mr. Selfridge, you know. Pretty much kept its, its audience still there, most of them. So... I don't understand Splash. To me, I mean, it's Tom. Tom Daly doesn't do very much. You know, he's not really training them. The dive is incredibly think... short, so there's no real sort of it doesn't build up to anything. And I mean, Vernon Kay looks like so awkward in his shorts. The whole show to me just feels complete car crap. I think it's one of the worst things ITV have done for years. But I think it's about family viewing, isn't it? It's kind of it's it's nothing supposed, else. I mean, that's it's, the point. It's, it's I, I been very that, well scheduled. Yeah, yeah I think very that's well right. scheduled. And you, you flick around trying to find something else. You come back to splash oh what is splash again I think it's wonderful <laughs> I'm really enjoying it and I tell you why I think what it's good want, first of all I, <laughs> I think I think her, her no I tell you why daily it daily is really good with people and I mean he is a person of achievement he is a, a, an Olympic medalist and I think he's very natural you see his face when someone's dived and he you can't actually manufacture a look he either looks just really pleased or whatever it is yeah. i think he's i think he's he's a, a tv presenter in the making after oh, his yeah. diving yeah. career yeah. i think yeah. the camera loves him yeah. and secondly i loved um eddie the eagle you know <laughs> edwards i mean you know I, you, see, you see these faces of before they dive you they can't disguise the fact they are extremely apprehensive to fearful and i know the dive is short but then it can be repeated i think it's a really good show and these are all people who are absolutely pushing themselves look i think it's a thing it's, it's, it's a family show isn't it tom daly isn't really there for his presenting skills it's you know teenage girls are adore him you know he's kind of a real darling in that way I think it's, a, it's something you can watch as a family it's it's for me it's the new total wipeout that's basically what it is it's you know it's people making fools of themselves even better they're celebrities and it's on a great time for family. It's it's clever. I fear you may be right. In fact, I was looking at a preview of MIPCOM, which is coming, MIP TV, which is coming out very soon in March. And there is another company doing uh, a diving show, which they're, they're going to pitch at uh, MIP TV. So I, I fear that there are going to be more shows of this genre. Well, it was, high, it was really successful in uh, Holland already, in the Netherlands already. It's been very successful. The new Total Wipeout. Well, I know. Who would have thought it? Who wouldn't want that title? If <laughs> you wanted the old one. <laughs> right, now it's just time. You'll be glad to know for the uh, Media Monkey Quiz. Which I know Maggie's particularly excited about. Listen to that. The groans. You don't get this one pointless. Right, okay, question number one. Who is planning a seven hour chat show? Oh, I know this. Well, you can answer then. Uh, it's for comic relief. Yes. And I think it's Graham Norton. It is Graham Norton, yes. Yay. He's sort of doing a sort of Chris Moore did a giant breakfast show, so Graham Norton's going to do a chat show. Uh, 50 guests, apparently. I sort and, uh, of think I could listen to Graham Norton for seven hours. I love his I Friday love night him. chat show. He'll be, able just to, he'll be able to keep it up. Yeah. yeah. He might bring his dog in too. Yeah, I think he's on top form too. Will he do the red chair as well, do you think? Oh, that would be great, particularly Just if it's the celebrities. In... Yes, exactly. <laughs> Question number two. Who was revealed this week as a closet telegraph reader? Oh, I know this. No, I don't, actually. No, I don't. That's a oh, Added jeopardy. Well, I can tell you it's his uh, new News International Chief Executive, Mike Darcy, who said he took the telegraph. Uh, Question number three. Uh, which Guardian journalist claimed this week that he saved TVAM? That was always going to be a tough one. It's Mr. Martin Wainwright. I think his tongue may have been slightly in cheek. On what basis did he say that? Read all about it at guardian.co.uk. Ah, okay. It's another 140 hits right there. And finally, a tiebreaker, although strictly speaking, we don't need one because Vicky's the only person who's got something right. Who is going to be the new editor of The Times? 
Maggie Brown. John Witherow. But not been announced yet. What do you think? What do you make of that, Maggie? Well, it's because they obviously have to square it with the trustees who are taking their responsibilities seriously. Um, I, I personally think it's a dreadful idea. That uh, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of James Harding, and I like the Times as it is. I'm a Times reader, and I have it delivered at home. And um, I, I regard the Times as uh, as a, f- a far superior newspaper to the Sunday Times. So I'm very upset that uh, Witherow is taking, or maybe is taking it over in some umbrella roll. Well, read all about whether Witherow gets the job, uh, when and whether at mediaguardian.co.uk. But for now, I should say my thanks to all this week's contributors, uh, Vicky Frost, Paul Robinson, Maggie Brown, Lisa O'Carroll and Roy Greenslade. Do please leave any comments you have about the show on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.